I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. follow-up interview with Darsha Narvaez. Darsha grew up in our modern Western culture and is Professor Emerita of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame and the award-winning author of many books on indigenous wisdom and child development. Darsha is also the co-author of Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduced 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth. Darsha, welcome back. I was interested in talking about the healing practice of Ho'oponopono because you brought that up in the book. Right. And you had pointed out the distinction between the original communal process and the newer kind of do-it-yourself version that's become much more popularized, which I learned about 15 years ago. And I actually have used it quite a lot And I find it to be very effective and also a very simple way of bringing myself back to presence. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, I often find myself back there in the middle of the process. Like I don't even get to the the thank you and I love you part usually because I just dissolve back into that state. Mm, nice. Yeah. And, so it's a habit then. It's become a habit. Yeah. Yeah. And talking with other people who also use it, I have a 
kind of a different approach to it. I guess we all have our own, you know, unique way of doing everything, I guess. Right. But I was interested in the distinctions between the more original communal process and the newer kind of do-it-yourself approach to it. Well, I think the big difference is that it's the original way is all all about community and connection to others, right? Not just about yourself, not individualistic. Although even the individual approach to it is very connective because, well, I guess it's a little tricky to talk about it, but everything, we're always in relation to everything around us. And to me, the individual approach by doing it on my own, from my own perspective, was to remove or to clean whatever is, is going on inside of me that gets in the way of connecting mm-hmm. and being open to the relational possibilities that are ever present. Right. Yeah, that's excellent. That's what the Western wisdom traditions would advise, right? All these adults coming to adulthood without having that clarity of self, of connection, of spirit. And the method is one way that helps you get back to that. It's just that in the traditional communities, pre-conquest communities, it's never about being just you. You're always in relation physically, you know, face-to-face, and learning all the nuances of being in that space with that other person in a physical, embodied way. So we spend a lot of time these days in our own alone, and so it makes sense that there would be a technique that works for our very individualistic society now or communities. It's just that it just doesn't match with the original, but it doesn't mean that it's not helpful. Yeah, I would like to talk more about the original, but maybe the reason why I connect with it so well and why it works for me so well is that many years ago I was living in a spiritual community where we, on a weekly basis, engaged in a ceremonial communal relational healing process that we called karma cleaning and it it was one of my very favorite things to do i always looked forward to it was every saturday morning i lived in a house in this it was a community of about 150 people and i was living in in a house with nine other people and every saturday morning we would gather together to do this process, you know, to clean out whatever things had arisen during the week that we hadn't had the opportunity to get to otherwise. And, you know, it created a very safe space for us to do that. And I think we all look forward to doing it, or at least I know I always look forward to doing it, no matter what had occurred during the week, whether I knew I was going to get nailed for something (laughs) that had come up. Because very much like the way you and Four Hours talked about the indigenous way of dealing with conflict resolution and things like that is that it's not about punishment and, and finding fault. It's, it's about finding ways to reconnect no matter what's happened. Yeah. So the, the orientation is always upon reconnection and healing, not on the flaws or what had happened. But I would love for you to talk about as much as you know about 
the more original communal process of practicing Ho'oponopono? Uh, well, I don't know that much about that practice. I know in general that the First Nations peoples and hunter-gatherer peoples and San Bushmen and others have regular kind of face-to-face -face kind of healing, not sitting all by themselves. That's weird for them <laughs> because they're so communal. So, you know, somebody to talk to is Richard Katz, K-A-T-Z. He's done a lot of publishing and experiencing. He's an anthropologist, psychologist, about healing practices in the different groups in Africa. Okay, I'll, I'll look into that. Yeah. But maybe we could talk more about what experience or knowledge you have of other indigenous ways of communal healing. Right. Just having regular drumming and dancing is a healing experience as a community and, and singing and even having, um, well, the radical anthropologists, you might look up them also, they're in London, radical anthropology group, but they talk about how our heritage in African communities, you can still see it, the women would band together and tease a man, well, one person would do it at first and then maybe the group would join in, tease a man whose head is getting too big, you know, getting too puffed up. They'd do that for anybody. And then that would become a way of trying to bring them back into the circle. And then women maybe would have too much power and that there would be kind of this coalition pendulum swinging back and forth between the sexes that kept things egalitarian, essentially. <laughs> so there's that kind of political kind of healing, I guess, sociopolitical. Then there's just the general healing for things going on on a daily basis. John Young talked about how he asked the San Bushman elders how often they had ceremonies and one of them said well for grieving maybe uh, several times a week <laughs> right so and that that would be the singing the drumming the dancing and in some communities I don't know if the San Bushmen do this not that I'm aware of but using some hallucinogenic like ayahuasca or something but that's other other groups they don't do that there. So I'm not that familiar with all the, you know, the nuance and detail, but Richard Katz would be an excellent uh, insider. <laughs> so that's interesting that they would be doing ceremony for grieving a few times a week. Right. In our culture, it seems like we have opportunities every day to grieve and and to actually engage in a a ceremonial healing way of dealing with it rather than our usual kind of either reacting to it or shunting it off to the side approach would be wonderful. Yeah, so I think you're saying that there are lots of things to grieve about. I don't think people have many opportunities to do so. It's frowned upon, you know, when the European cultures shifted to Protestantism. That was all the all those ceremonies and festivals and things were discouraged and people grieving about the death of a loved one, you know, that you just did that yourself or in the closed doors. <laughs> you didn't do it out in public like you used to do. 
right? Or you went to your church or your middleman to God to do that. Right. So it got shut down. A lot of emotion expression got shut down. Uh, and the Protestants got rid of all sorts of festivals where people could actually go out and party and and uh, release emotion or whatever. And so it's just not done now in the in the westernized cultures. Yeah. And you had mentioned women teasing men. And that was another interesting thing that I wanted to to actually talk about because there are studies on testosterone levels in men when they're around other men versus when they're around children. Yeah, it's that usually testosterone levels that are assumed to be normal are measured among guys who aren't around kids. And then that's assumed in the West that that's the normal. But we, we evolved to be in multi-aged groups. And we know that when men are around young children, their testosterone levels are lower particularly fathers. And so in our ancestral context, everyone was the father, right? You're kind of a communal village raising the children. So the baseline there then would be a lower level of testosterone than what we see now. So then when uh, men are hanging around men, as they tend to do in this culture, and how our institutions are very patriarchal, male, masculine-oriented, and even the women who participate in them generally adopt a kind of masculine approach to them. Could you talk about how that influences the way people behave in the world? Well, it tends to make people less empathic, less heart-centered, and more rivalrous, more dominance-oriented. And so it's going to lead to more risk-taking. And especially if it's other people's money. I mean, there's evidence that conservative males are more likely to take risks if it's not directly affecting them. So they would be more likely to risk, you know, things about the environment with other people's money. (laughs) So there is some concern that when we isolate groups, even young children, when they're isolated in the same age group, they don't learn as much. They don't learn to cooperate as much as if they are in a multi-age group. And so we can say the same about multi-sex groups are better for um, at least enabling males to have more empathy. Females have, you know, a more built-in resilience and capacities for kind of a broader worldview and relational orientation in general. And men are the specialized sex and they need much more support and care and guidance in early childhood, especially uh, through age six, they need more of the evolved nest. But I think they also need more embeddedness in the kind of the general multi-age group community so they have wise elders around all the time instead of risk takers Mm -hmm. and there was a creation story that was mentioned in the book where women are considered to be complete whereas men are a step away from being complete and that they also um, mature slower and and need more time in the evolved nest yes right and boys get less of it So then you end up with very underdeveloped males, right? And what's developing in those early years is the right hemisphere, which is the guide initially to self-control of various kinds, 
empathy, relational kind of graces, sociality. And those things then get underdeveloped and the child is left with their primarily their survival systems, especially if you stress them, they're toxically stressed them with circumcision. They're going to be oriented to dominance because that's all they have. They haven't developed everything. And so we end up with all these alpha males, right? And all these rivalrous destroyers of the planet. <laughs> Just jump to that, right? We, go, we have alphas out of control wanting to make an authoritarian culture, which is what we're doing in the States right now, right? It's the power of the big billionaires fueling all this division and wanting to keep the status quo, which they think they're going to be fine, I guess, behind their walls and their gated communities when everything collapses somehow. (laughs) Yeah, it just occurred to me that when we become disconnected in that way, We forget about what we were previously connected to. We forget how disconnected we are, and we forget what we are disconnected from. Yeah, we uh, the baseline shift down. Our expectations get lower and lower. Our standards get lower and lower for what we think is normal behavior, how to treat people. Much less awareness of I call it receptive intelligence. The uh, picking up on signals from the natural world listening and being able to interpret and understand and be part of the you know bio community it's a connected place but we have all these people who are essentially unable to connect and not aware they're not connecting (laughs) yeah exactly and it reminded me of how back in the early days of the united states how they took a few elements of the iroquois way of governance, but they excluded the women, which was an essential part of their way of governance, which instituted this kind of isolated, masculine, patriarchal way of dealing with the world, which you just said comes from a perspective that tends to take a lot of risks out of context of the world that we exist in. Yeah. They're floating above the earth. They're not of the earth. They feel so disconnected. They don't know what they're doing. And the left brain is so good at making up reasons and rationalizing anything. So that's what they rely on. And it just gets worse and worse. The founding fathers also missed the fact that if you're going to have a democracy, the way you raise children really matters because you build a democratic character within the evolved nest or without it, you build an authoritarian character. And they didn't have any idea about that because they came from the European tradition of punishing kids to make them autonomous later. (laughs) You punish them to make them obey. And then when they're old enough, they will adopt laws voluntarily. They will be so-called autonomous, and which is completely crazy. That's not how it works, but that's the European view. And so it's that worldview that's destroying us because you destroy everything at the beginning, destroy connection, you destroy attachment, you break the will of the child, and then you expect you know, that child to be a democratically oriented person. Ah. <laughs> so it's the loving families that end up 
the ones who nurture their children with respect and honoring the dignity of babies and young children that end up with the people who have the big hearts, who are able to be flexible and attuned to others, who are able to work and negotiate and compromise and listen and, and take every perspective as a given and aren't trying to force their ways on others. So it's interesting that their intention was actually toward the common good, but they fundamentally missed the boat because of the worldview that they brought with them from the old world. They, they missed kind of the fatal flaw in their thinking. Yeah, it's sort of like novices. Novices see sort of the, the superficialities of things, and they think that's following the rules. Like when Jean Piaget studied children's boys' marble games, and how their understanding of the rules and, and playing developed over the first, I think, 10, 12 years. And the young kids would just, you know, play the marbles randomly. And then they would start to, you know, think th that they're following a rule when they did one thing and wouldn't combine or be able to really understand that you're supposed to, you know, have the marble only here and only do this action, you know, but they would, over time, make up these magic beliefs about the rules, you know, that if you did that, you were completely wrong and you'd get punished and all sorts of different ways that novices generally understand the whatever they're learning, trying to imitate. And I think the founding fathers looked at the superficial aspects, right, which is the structures of having three units, right, a president, the executive branch, the judicial, the congressional legislative and they set things up in ways that, you know, look like it's going to work and having conversations and negotiations in the groups. But they didn't realize how you came to raise people who are able to do that, who aren't oriented to aristocracy and dominance. They didn't know that because they were aristocrats, right? They were used to having this hierarchy of domination. So they missed the, you know, they missed the boat. Right. And they, right from the very beginning, they didn't understand how, as you so eloquently point out with the evolved nest, it all begins with the way we raise our children to be oriented toward the common good. And in this culture, we completely miss it. Yeah, we do the opposite. And then we blame the individual. Or we find we find somebody or something else to blame except our own way of thinking. Yeah, right. So you externalize, which means you blame someone else. When I feel uncomfortable because something you're doing or saying makes me feel uncomfortable, instead of realizing it's something in me that's being triggered and I have some healing to do, I blame you for making me feel uncomfortable. Or the politician, the con man tells me, Blame them for, you know, whatever problem you have in your life. Okay, yeah, so much easier to blame somebody else, right, than to realize I have an issue to work on or we in the community need to fix our structures and systems and institutions and policies because it's not working. No, let's just blame those people over there and build a wall or whatever it is and, you know, punish those people. And then we'll be better. And so you never deal with your inner pain. You never deal with 
getting along and figuring out how to reorganize your community. You don't know how to do that very well because you weren't raised to do that, right? You were, if you're in a domination culture. Yeah, so here we are. Yeah, and it reminds me of the way our economic system, it's based on this like P.T. Barnum philosophy of a sucker is born every minute and never give a sucker an even break. Yeah, it's very cynical. And that's that cruelty in early childhood is going to make that seem like a good thing because you were treated cruelly. You don't think of it consciously, but you think the world's a cruel place, so you got to be cruel first. Right. <laughs> and as you mentioned, it begins right from the beginning with things like circumcision being taken away from your mother at birth. And all the other practices, like being left to cry in a cradle in another room. Yeah, and even during pregnancy, mom's biochemistry is, if she feels unsupported, if she's stressed, especially socially stressed, you know, and we do that routinely now, the baby's brain is shaped differently than if she is supported and feeling calm and sending loving energy to her fetus. So even before birth, things are happening that we are not paying attention to. It kind of lays the groundwork for a sociopathic and to the extreme psychopathic culture. Yeah, Charles Derber, the sociologist, has written about how our culture is sociopathic. To get ahead, you have to be sociopathic to get ahead economically. And then we reward all these people who are sociopaths, right? As if they're winners. They're the best, right? These wealthy people with six houses and 10 yachts. <laughs> That's crazy. That's, uh, how did we get here, right? This is not what complex hunter-gatherers and tribes and chiefdoms first came about. It was giving away your property that was critical, not hoarding it. And we reward with attention and fame the hoarders now, <laughs> which is, of course, then why we're destroying everything, because everyone wants to follow the model of being a super hoarder. And in the indigenous world, there's the concept of Watiko. I think I first came across that from a book by Paul Levy back probably oh, about 15 yes. years ago. It's another term, Wendigo. Yeah. Yeah, that's a psychic virus that takes over a person. And it's sort of like gold fever. All you want is to take and consume and cannibalize the lives of, of others, animals, plants, people. Um, it's the hungry ghost idea of the Asian culture where you have this deep hole and you're just taking it all in. So there's warning stories about Watiko in several Native American communities. And I think it's taken over the planet, essentially, and in part because of the way we raise children and under care for them. Yeah, I agree. It really seems like this dominant culture that pervades most of the planet has become completely sociopathic in that way. Right. So people have to get back to connection and especially to the natural world because the land, the earth will save us, but only if we're ready to listen, right? 
Yeah, and Einstein famously said that we can't solve our problems with the same level of thinking we use to create them. And yet within the culture, nobody's really offering a sane alternative. Mm -hmm. Well, they don't know, right? They haven't practiced another way. They've denigrated. So the ego consciousness, the left brain that has dominated the Western world and then spread all over for the last few hundred years in particular, intensively, dismisses anything else. This is where uh, Ian McGilchrist's work would be helpful to interview him or read his work, how it's destroying the planet, essentially, because the ego consciousness has gone wild. <laughs> yeah, and also that's why this book that you and Four Arrows put together is so relevant and so important for our time. Yeah, we hope. It helps people get nudged in the right direction, right? There's so much to do, but just to become enlightened in terms of connection and being a member of the Earth community, we hope that happens. And one of the things that makes it difficult for our culture to do that is that we think we're so superior to everything else. We think we're the pinnacle of nature that we are now separate from it and above it. And one of the precepts or understandings is that human beings are actually the younger kin of the rest of the other than human world. Considered equal, but that being the younger member of the family have much to learn from the rest of the other than human world. That's right. There's new book out, An Immense World by Ed Young. He talks about the different sensory capacities that other animals have and gives a bunch of examples on how we can't see ultraviolet light, right? Or hear infrasound, infrasonic communications that the elephants are doing. He points out all these things that we're, you know, incapable of, and yet how can we think we're superior? <laughs> and in the indigenous cultures, their vision quests and other rites of passage, which begin with children from the age of six being sent out into the wilderness on their own to connect with their guardian spirits and those spirit elements of the unseen world that we dismiss in our Western culture. Could you talk about the importance of all of that in all of this? Well, again, the Westerners are missing perceptions that was squelched. It wasn't fostered their awarenesses, their abilities. So then they dismiss it because they're not sensing it. Or if they sense things, they, in some situations, consider it the devil or Satan, which sounds crazy to a Native American original traditional one. So it's really vital that children have a chance even babies, to connect to the natural world without interference, without controlling and, and guiding their attention towards danger, you know, or a sense of risk. You know, they should be able to have their own experience with the natural world that allows their perceptual capacities to grow. And so this means not on a lawn, <laughs> but in a complex place, a forest. Uh, seashore, that kind of thing, and mountain area, so that they learn to listen. And adults can, you know, guide their attention a bit when they get older to 
you know, to notice certain animals or plants and know how to use the plants that are healing or for some need. And then to ask permission always to, before you take the plant, and if the plant resists being taken, don't take the plant, right? To listen and to always be relationally oriented. Megan Bang and Doug Medine of Northwestern have been integrating a native orientation to science education in this way, because otherwise science education is usually very detached. That you know, humans are the ones with spirit and energy and will and everything else is kind of dead or dumb or inert and you can manipulate everything well the native way is to feel with whatever it is you're studying and to honor and respect it and so we need that kind of education and our education system of course is set up to kind of do the opposite to shut down your perceptions to shut down your heart sense your intuitions and just learn some information so you can pass the test so it's pushing children towards left brain functioning as if that's the superior way of being a human being. And Mm -hmm. those are the people that get in charge, right? And they don't know what they're missing, which is a hard message to get across. (laughs) Yeah, especially when you've been steeped in it your entire life. Yeah. And then, of course, miss out on our relationship to the great mystery. Right. And you get scared of it instead. Yeah, could you talk more about that, that relationship, fear, and and developing a natural sense of courage or fearlessness in relation to the great mystery that surrounds us? Not just the physical aspect of nature, but the unseen, mysterious, spiritual nature of it. Well, what I was already saying about children's need to be out in the natural world where it's full of energies and living beings, sentience. And there are some psychologists who talk about how the Greeks, you know, used to have gods and temples and other ways to talk about psychologies, um, feelings. So there'd be a god of revenge, a god of sadness, maybe, I don't know all the gods, but what's happened over time is we've internalized all that instead of having a place to go outside of yourself to deal with the feeling you're having, let's say it's revenge. You now have it as part of you and then you act on that, right? So we have people who get caught up in their own feelings instead of, in a way, understanding that it's coming in from the dynamic world, that we're in this dynamic world of feeling and gods and energies, I guess, depending on how you want to talk about it. And what we have encouraged is for people to just not be aware of that and not be aware of being respectful to all the energies of where we are. And it's easiest to understand learning respect and connection with the non-human world through the natural world, what you can see in trees and the animals and plants and waters and other entities on the planet. But there's also these things we can't see that's much harder to learn to get along with. The Native Americans have long said, some of the elders, that they used to be able to speak with the spirits, with the animals. And then after the Europeans came, a lot of that was lost, that ability. So I think what's happened is the European Western culture 
have kind of just mowed down, assumed everything else was mute except for human beings, <laughs> and just mowed it all down and made it mute, right? And everything's so disordered now and dysregulated, even outside of the human community, that it's hard to figure out how to get back into that balancing of spirits, balancing of the relational web. We're in a very critical time period right now to see if we can get back into respectful relations with the natural world, the spiritual world. According to many traditional societies all over the world, the spiritual world has its own rules and has its own laws that you need to follow or else there'll be consequences. But that's, again, completely been wiped out of the westernized worldview. And those are things that we have to discover on our own in actual direct relationship with the natural world and the spirit world. Yeah, and that's where it helps to have a guide who knows something. Who, so you don't, these are, as Paul Levy says, right, that it's rather dangerous work. So you have to be careful. And we need guides. <laughs> we need shamans, but real ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's interesting, in the Celtic tradition or, or in the British Isles, they also talk about the fairy realms who yeah. are, in their culture, those are the nature spirits. And when the Romans came and Christianity, the fairy realm receded yeah. into, the, into the unconscious. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting how the outer world has affected the inner world. Yeah. Even affecting the way the indigenous people could experience those realms. Right, even though they weren't doing things to disrupt everything, it was still disrupted for them. Yeah, that's such an interesting dynamic. Yeah. So hopefully if we all get back into balance and relationally attuned, we can help others as well. It's sort of like, you know, forests create atmospheric rivers that affect the weather elsewhere. So if you cut down a forest, you're affecting the weather hundreds of miles away. So maybe something similar in terms of the spiritual. Yeah, the way we think, our perspective of the world. Yeah. Well, I greatly appreciate you coming back on the show, and thank you so much. You're very welcome. Good to be with you, Tonio. And be well. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Darsha Narvaez. Darsha grew up in our modern Western culture and is Professor Emerita of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame and the award-winning author of many books on indigenous wisdom and child development. Darsha is also co-author of Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduce 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth. Ta 
and this is Rebecca Adamson, whose work on the economics of enoughness is included in restoring the kinship worldview. I'm going to spend time analyzing the design principles behind indigenous people's economic paradigm. I'm doing this because I think that really the current economic system is the biggest threat to Mother Earth and therefore the fundamental cause behind climate change. And I think if we're going to get started, there's a lot to learn from indigenous societies. I'm Eastern Cherokee Deer Clan, and my mom used to have a saying when I was a teenager going, you know, full out which was basically, Rebecca Lee, if you don't change directions, you're going to end up where you're headed. (laughs) Great wisdom, and so appropriate for today. Basically, I got started internationally. I'd started an Indian organization in the U.S., First Nations Development Institute. And I used to say, well, what we're learning here with culturally appropriate development, we could work around the world with indigenous communities because we would be learning more. And this was our goal, was to really look at culture and development within today's sort of modern economy. My first trip overseas then, because you have to kind of put your feet into action with what your words are saying, I'd started getting letters from all around the world from indigenous groups that I actually had never heard of. And also coming from the U.S., I didn't even know if they were countries or towns or villages on the address. I had no real sense of global geography. So I ignored them for a while when I was at First Nations. And then pretty soon I realized I was getting like close to 200 a year from communities, sometimes written in pencil, often written in pencil, letters that were just really asking We want to develop, but we do not want to give up our culture. Can you come work with us? Like, things happen. I finally picked one out of the blue, and it was the San people in Botswana. And we decided to go over. We'd formed a group in 1994 to go over there and start just a conversation with them. We'd been invited over by a couple of their community members. And so while we were there, we'd gone over there to really begin to look at culture and development, and we were sitting out under a tree, and the Central Kalahari Game Reserve is just enormous, and the government park service came up, and they basically announced that they were going to be evicted to make way for a protected area or a park. And it struck me so hard because I'm Eastern Cherokee. I don't know how many of you really know the histories, but we were forcibly removed from our ancestral territories and taken over to Oklahoma. And I thought, maybe this one point in time is why I'm here, is to be part of trying to stop this. And so we talked to them about the way we could try to set up some advocacy, some action, get some people helping us. And they were so, so thrilled. And I had met some of their leaders and had been completely moved by two men in particular, Coela and Sammy. And they had been caught by the game wardens again for trying to go back to the ancestral territories that they had already started moving the folks from the boundaries of the central Kalahari on down into Hansi. And they'd had gasoline poured up their rectums. And they were basically going to die. The only thing that Sammy and Kuala wanted was to die on their own land. And I met with them late into the night, and I told them that I would do everything I could to stop the eviction. And I would try to get them back to their homeland so that they actually could die. I couldn't do that. We weren't able. By the time we got back, Coyle and Sammy had died. And the fact that I had showed up, though, the fact that I had come back, the entire community gathered from the six villages. They walked for days to come to Malapo to meet with me and the people that we had brought together to talk about this issue. 
And one of the things that was fascinating was one of the women, I remember to this day, when we were talking about the tactics that we had used so that we could stop evictions, she jumped up and in the, her language she was saying, and we had translators because there are not a whole lot of people that speak the different sign languages, and basically what she was saying was when she goes to bed at night, she's going to smell happiness. And when she wakes up in the morning, she's going to smell happiness. And I thought, smell happiness, that's, that's odd. And that night, in order to celebrate the fact that we were really going to fight the eviction, they'd had a trance dance for us. Trance dance is a very rare opportunity to be part of with the San people. It's a ritual and a ceremony that goes back 40-some thousand years. And as they built this huge bonfire and as they began the singing to bring them into trance, I would close my eyes and I would hear the wind like that. And I'd hear the grasses rustling. And I would hear snaps of twigs and cracks of branches. And I'd open my eyes, and I was sitting out on the Kalahari, which is a desert. And I was wondering how I was hearing these sounds. And I closed my eyes again, and I'd hear them again, and open my eyes. And I realized what I was hearing was the conversation of the San people, a people so tied to their land that the very language they spoke was basically those sounds that they heard from nature. And in taking those sounds from nature, they had come and crafted a language, a human language. The first human language known in anthropological research. And here we had a people so tied, so close, so much a part of nature, that the very way they spoke brought you in touch with it. And they were going to be forcibly evicted. The same happened to the Meningella pygmies, evicted from their impenetrable forest to make way for a park. In total, over one and a half million indigenous people in Africa have been evicted, actually, to make way for parks. And I say that because I'm going to talk about an economic paradigm, but I wanted to use it as a story of what our conservation paradigm is and the way indigenous peoples organize. Every society organizes socially, politically, and economically according to its values. And here we have within indigenous people a conservation paradigm that places us directly in connection with all of nature. We are only one part of it, one small part of it, but we are seeing ourselves within a conservation paradigm as a key part in stewarding and living in harmony and balance. What we have in Western conservation a lot of times is this Western idea of pristine wilderness, which means people free, which is why we get evicted on the parks. It's a conservation paradigm that will eventually try to secure, I think the goal is 23% of the world's surface in pristine wilderness. But what about the other 80% of the world, of Mother Earth, of the plants and the animal lives? A conservation paradigm within indigenous peoples is one of protection and production. You protected your place because it produced for you, and it produced for you because you protected it. These paradigms are what's at work today as we sit here. And a paradigm is really how you then go forward and begin to organize your societies, seeing yourself as separate of nature or seeing yourself as part of and only one part of nature. When we look at the economic paradigm, you can see it kind of build. And we've looked at, within Western economics, the two most fundamental principles, economic laws, are scarcity of resources. I call it nature picayunious in the fact that there's a belief that nature and resources are limited and we're going to run out. 
which has always confounded me because of the way it operates. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy right now. But the other part of that paradigm is really the character of man in that it's perceived and believed that we are all an aggregate of individuals with insatiable appetites. Insatiable appetites. An infinite number of wants. Wanting an infinite number and variety within those wants. There's no limit. We're never content. The more we get, the more we want. As soon as we meet one horizon, we're looking to the next for more. If you believe this kind of paradigm, this economic paradigm, then what you do have is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Compare that, though, to an indigenous economic paradigm. And you have people who believe in prosperity of creation and a kinship-based sense of enoughness. I wanted to show a little five-minute video, because usually I have to explain more of a cultural context, but I think the video will bring us into the context of this culture connected to nature and a paradigm of economics. It's about five minutes. Basically, within these economies, you have scarcity, which you design a system for competition. Scarcity, you design a system for accumulation, which drives the growth. With prosperity of creation, you're looking at cooperation and sharing it. How we see the world determines how we act. The Western philosopher Hobbes saw humans as engaged in a war with each other over resources, making our lives solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. This view of the individual, fearful, working alone, in competition with others, now dominates Western philosophical tradition. In indigenous philosophy, we are all related as individuals, as part of a kinship-based community, and as part of nature, in balance with the whole. In most Western thought, society is seen as an aggregate of self-interested individuals, connected by competition with each other over limited resources, creating fear, insecurity, hopelessness, a scarcity of spirit. Indigenous societies see prosperity in nature. Resources are abundant, shared. Collaboration fosters environmental stewardship and balance with nature. In the Western worldview, nature is feared. Its value based on hierarchy. Everything on earth ranked. Mineral, plant, animal. With humans at the top, dominating everything below. In the indigenous worldview, humans are an equal part of a vibrant, interconnected whole. Two worldviews, two very different economic systems. The dominant Western market economy, like its worldview, driven by an assumption of scarce resources, intensive centralized production, individuals with insatiable appetites accumulating, by this standard, the market economy works. 40% of the Earth's resources owned by just 1% of the population. The combined wealth of the three richest individuals in the world exceeds the GDP of the poorest 47 countries. The world contains only 497 multi-billionaires, while half of its population survives on less than two and a half dollars a day. The indigenous economy, like its worldview, interdependent, decentralized production, extensive use of resources, promoting responsible resource management, abundance, 
kinship, a belief in enoughness, encourages sharing and cooperation. In the Arctic, after a successful whale hunt, Inuit kinship and reciprocal obligations ensure everyone's needs are met, fairly and equitably. Prerequisites for sustainability, the health of the economy measured by the health of the whole. Health in the market economy, measured by gross domestic product. The more we produce, consume, the better the economy. Construction of buildings, manufacturing, transportation, all considered positive production, but so is production of weapons, cigarettes, while investments like health care, education, are considered costs, negative economic productivity, and the impact on GDP of the physical and emotional costs of warfare, or the pollution that threatens one-third of the world's animal species, irrelevant externalities outside the system, not even making it onto the balance sheet, an unsustainable system where scarcity of resources is a self-fulfilling prophecy. There is an alternative. Indigenous people's territory spans 24% of the Earth's land surface, but is home to 80% of its total biodiversity. This is not a coincidence. In indigenous cultures, balance and harmony aren't romantic notions, but millennia-old design fundamentals. Nature essential for survival. Production and protection together. Economic success sustainable, creating well-being for all. First Peoples funds indigenous models and traditional practices that offer insights to creating an alternative economy which promotes balance with nature and communal harmony. When we talk about sharing from a cultural point of sharing, from an economic point of sharing, I wanted to show you how strong that culture is. What we did was we mapped a subsistence harvest take and the sharing points of how the whale was distributed. And if you look at that, you cannot really count how many places those pieces of whale meat get shared and distributed. So when you see that sharing, it's not just quaint cultural customs. It's a vibrant economy that is at work whose goal is sustainability. Indigenous people's fundamental value was sustainability, and they conducted their livelihoods in ways that sustained resources and limited inequalities in their society. Indigenous economies, or what are called subsistence economies, I don't like to use that term subsistence because it so often means like ecking out an existence, but a subsistence economy isn't just merely the hunting, fishing, and foraging activities. Instead, it embodies an entire way of life. It links our generations and extended families through traditional law, legends, and ceremonies. All of these laws, legends, and ceremonies are tied by a common concern for the land, water, and the resources. When we talk about living in harmony and balance, these aren't romantic notions for an indigenous economy. They are fundamental design principles. There are four germane characteristics Nature is a source of knowledge, a model to emulate, and a mentor. Community is essential for survival. Equity and justice within the community members and between the communities is recognized as central to sustainability. 
Culture and interplay of spiritual beliefs define the relationships and regulate allocation and communal use over all capital, all forms of capital, all natural resources. Subsistence is a complex economic system with axes formed by interdependence and sharing. It requires organized labor. It operates according to a complex network of associations, rights, and obligations. Small groups, families, extended families, all determine the, the production and are the production units. They serve as the basis also for distribution, sharing, and trading throughout the inner and intra-community networks and commerce patterns. Producers are consumers, owners, users, and peers, and superiors, all at the same time. They form a flexible production unit that shifts and changes according to what needs to be done and who has the skills. Cooperation is key. There are no intrinsic advantage among the members of the community or society. Common usage rights are flexible. They're negotiated and they're renegotiated on an ongoing basis. The mere fact you are born, you are given economic rights, usage rights by the clans. So you have your mother's clan, your father's clan, and you have economic. That'd be like the minute you're born, you get a bank account with money in it just because you were born. I want to talk about, because a lot of times when I talk about this, we get a lot of pushback, I think, on, well, the only reason that works is because it's small scale. Or are you trying to stop time and live in a time warp? But I want to talk about one story that I think hopefully illuminates that this doesn't have to do with scale. It doesn't have to do with technology. It has to do with our values and how we organize. The story starts in 1968 when an entire industry was on the verge of collapse. It was losing a million dollars a day, and in 1968, that's a phenomenal amount of money, which I think is still a lot today. It was characterized by a few dominant major players, proprietary players. It also had a strangling, rigid web of regulations. It had immensely competing interests. Sheer desperation led to reorganizing this industry, and lo and behold, the industry, this new entity, was organized on the exact design principles of an indigenous economy. Community is essential. The entity is owned, but it cannot be bought or sold. Ownership financing is equitable. Equity and justice within and among members is essential. No one gets the upper hand in this industry. There's no intrinsic advantage among one or small groups within the greater whole. Cooperation is key. Production units are flexible networks that change and shift. Members are simultaneously owners, customers, peers, subordinates, superiors. Small groups, networks, and extended networks operate and grow. The structure is infinitely malleable and adaptable, but extremely durable. Does anybody know the industry I'm talking about? Visa, the credit card industry. It's more than 23,000 financial institutions in over 274 countries. The banks had to come together to distribute credit as widely as possible. They didn't want to distribute wealth, don't get me wrong. <laughs> they wanted to distribute credit. So they basically set up a bank owns Visa, but no one bank can sell Visa. Small blocks of banks within Visa, or even the largest bank within Visa, has no more power than Pipestone Bank in Montana. But it clears more financial transactions in a week than the Federal Reserve does in a year. I tell this story again to illuminate that it's not about size. It's about values. 
The principles that we have in an indigenous economy operate both locally and globally. Indigenous economies utilize the greatest diversity, not monocropping. But with deliberate efforts, they also increase diversity because it's seen as diversification increases productivity and it reduces risk. It's just the opposite of what we're seeing happen in the agricultural industry, really. But we saw what happened with Ireland with the potatoes when there was only one crop. Indigenous people are always looking at their habitats from a way of how they can increase diversity, as seeing it as a way for stability and sustainability. All decisions are based on minimum yield, not average or maximum. You hear that in a saying about unto this seventh generation, each decision should be made. It's that ability to look at minimum yield because you want the maximum for the future. Technology is harnessed according to social values and order. And let me talk about the values again. I come from a matrilineal society. The Cherokees were matrilineal. The women ruled the tribe during times of peace. They were the white council. We're looking at the seventh generation in the decisions and technology harnessed by our social values and order. One of the things I see as a Cherokee woman, the values of our nation and our society were balance and harmony. So let's talk for a minute about the political with a white council, we were able to bring the strength, the female power, into play for making decisions that was best for the whole. The red council was the men's council. We were able to bring through the men's council during time of war the strategies and the tactical information that we needed to preserve our territories and our peoples. We also have, when we're looking at, again, on the seventh generation in my own tribe, being matrilineal, you could marry the woman. The children took the woman's name, was passed on in a matrilineal fashion. Divorce had no stigma. However, because again, the value was on the future generations, all property stayed with the children. The children were not brought to a court as a piece of property to be fought over. All material property was actually attached to the children so that the future was protected, so that the children and the seventh generations were protected. We've used these same principles a number of times in a contemporary sense. I had the honor to work with the Pine Ridge people, the Lakota Nation out in South Dakota, and it was the first microenterprise loan fund in the United States. And at the time, we actually didn't even have the word microloan, microfinance. We were saying little, little tiny baby loans. And then the Ford Foundation was funding us, and so they thought they'd run into Dr. Yunus over in Grameen, who was doing a microfinance bank, and so the Grameen Bank. And so they brought him over to Pine Ridge and us over to Bangladesh to see each other's work. And it was really exciting because in Bangladesh, there's 1,800 people per square mile, and in Pine Ridge, it's 1.8 people per square mile. So poor Dr. Yunus was scared to death to leave our site because he couldn't see it. It was just vast expanse. And when we got over there, we were like, you see pictures of us. Even when we could stand a little bit wider, we're standing like this because we felt so completely crowded with all the people over there. It was an incredible experience. But it got me really thinking again of these design principles and how can we connect capital to community in ways that make our communities flourish? Because I'd seen the capital flows continually going up, 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 out of your community to the, maybe if you were in Pine Ridge, it went up to Minneapolis. From Minneapolis, it goes to New York from New York gets packaged and repackaged and cut and into derivatives. So how can we change this? Well, basically, I was on the Calvert Social Investment Fund's board, which was a mutual fund, and I made a passionate plea to our shareholders that poor people were creditworthy. 
and I talked about the Lakota Fund, and I talked about the difference it was making. It was a multi-income strategy. Again, looking at this particular slide, what we were trying to do was do development that took into account the kind of broad-based distribution of opportunity and resources that our cultures operated by. We got to um, Calvert. We had the shareholder meeting. I had the microphone, and the founder, Wayne Silby, was sitting there. And all of a sudden, a woman in the audience jumps up, and she said, because I'd said we could just use 1% of the portfolio to invest in low-income um, loan funds. And a shareholder jumps up, and she goes, let's do 5%. Pretty soon, someone jumped up and said, well, I think we could do 10%. About that point, even I was thinking, well, let's just try 1% to see how this works. You know, I'm looking at Wayne like, you know, and so we started the high social impact investing, which basically the goal was to become an asset class in and of itself. It became what's called community notes, and it literally has over a billion dollars flowing through it today, going into global funds, into domestic funds, into many of the low-income uh, community development financial institutions that have gone into effect as we all began looking at new and more creative ways to do financing. My point in this story is that it's really happening. It's really these design principles that we need to take into our institutions today because they are not working across the board. And what I'd like to do is show how we do this work at First Peoples, and we have a small fund uh, that we make uh, grants directly to indigenous communities. Now, one-third of our portfolio is going to communities that have never, ever received funding before or handled money before. We were very deliberate in wanting to look at a reach that was deeply within our grassroots communities, within our traditional societies, and begin to put small amounts of money to see what would come from their own designs, from their own ideas, from their own problem solving. And I brought some of the grantees to show you uh, this time. Uh, we're in over 70 countries right now through Keepers of the Earth, and um, some of the principles that we're seeing come out. And these are small grants, so we're not providing a tremendous amount of uh, design technical assistance. We're just providing anywhere from 500 to 10000 or $20,000. Uh, the first one is really uh, the worldview. And in the fact, this is the Loberkinji uh, community in Somburo. It's one of seven main pastoral tribes in Kenya. They, the subsistence activities are mainly... Um, cattle, goat, and camel. But, like I said before, that livestock cements the social relations and spiritual life of the Semburu. The government decided to evict them, uh, and our grant basically went to support them to map their land and document it for formal land rights. But this is spread. They're working with seven other tribes now in the Kenya area on what they learned, that connection, that interdependency among the groups is vibrant in this particular project. And it made international news in December 2011 because they won the right to stay on their lands. Uh, and they won the right also to become co-managers of some of the parks in the areas. This is a fascinating um, group in Alti, uh, Russia. It's uh, up there, the understanding is land has breath. It's an umbilical cord. 
nose, mouth, eyes, and ears. It's alive. It's sensate. It senses. We sense. We are so part of it. Everything that exists on earth is alive. And in order to honor that, in order to celebrate that, they have traditional songs of Altai Russia uh, that they sing. And this is basically one of the ceremonies they're doing where they sing the song of life and they tamp when they walk. They walk in a manner that is believed to take the energy and in reciprocity tamp that energy back into Mother Earth and thank her for her providing um, the essentials. We fund the traditional knowledge of the Altai and the local leaders and the elders and the shaman. And this project has grown actually uh, to a regional forum uh, within Russia. And it covers right now uh, four other villages. And we've hooked it up with a scientific group that are beginning to work with them to try to document uh, any kind of indicators or outcomes from that. This one I though is balance and harmony are not romantic notions. We have to get away from that and begin to understand they are fundamental design principles. This is the Batwa and the Bumtuni, Bumtuni uh, who've lived for a millennia within the Ituri forest northeast of the uh, DCR. And basically, they pretty much have been practicing subsistence lifestyles. But again, what we were looking at was the evictions from the national parks. And so uh, our small grant, $5,000 grant, uh, is funding them uh, to work within the guerrilla conservation areas and to really start bringing some of their conservation paradigm uh, into the conservation that is already taking place in the areas. We're funding uh, that. We started it with just the beginning of their getting together, and we're actually funding co-management training now, and they're beginning to network on that, but they haven't expanded past... um, their immediate village yet. This one is about uh, looking at nature as prosperity. When I talked about the prosperity of creation, people can argue we are going to run out of fossil fuel, absolutely. But the prosperity of creation would look at wind, look at solar. The ability to look at nature from a point of prosperity changes the way you're going to design your structures. This group uh, had severe food insecurity, malnutrition, no clean water. We basically funded the women of the Lowu community in Kenya, and they've already installed 250 multi-story food gardens, five new water catchment systems, and a network of 20 community food and health providers. Um, By working together and by building the food uh, storage gardens, uh, they're beginning to bring back this sense of the prosperity that's within creation. The flexible production units that I talked about could be seen in the project in El Salvador. The Nahut community in El Salvador builds sustainable villages using traditional knowledge and appropriate technology. They're building a network, or a practitioner's network, basically, of folks who can build solar pumps. And they're building composting toilets and training the community in its use. They have replanted over 3,000 trees to buffer the tropical rain damage. And over 100 people are involved in production, and they're taking it to three other villages uh, in looking at the permaculture project. And again, what I say, when we, we fund community-based projects and designs. So by the time they come into us, we really haven't, we haven't handed any of these principles out. We're not saying your projects will be funded if they do this, this, and this. 
These are coming straight in. In many of the communities, we've changed our grant making so that it's not about what are your, what's, give us your problem statement, give us your goals, give us your measurable objectives and your activity charts. That's not the way indigenous people think. We think from a systems, holistic point of view. So we say, tell us a story. What's your community, what's going on in your community and what does your community want to, uh, what pro, what's it doing and what's it facing and, and what are you doing about it? And we also take a lot of the proposals um, in by Skype, and we take our reports in by Skype because we're really dealing with a grant-making system that is to reach, like I said, the, the most traditional of our communities. This is what we're getting back. Here we have the paradigm I talked about earlier of protection and production, production and protection. You took care of, you protected your place because it produced for you, and it only produced for you because you protected it. There's a number of tribal groups in the Nakuno district in Uganda, and what was happening was polyurethane bags were coming in from all different points uh, around the community, and they were destroying the land. So basically, 30 young girls uh, got together, and they were trained by this elder woman uh, to make bang bags from the palm trees and bark cloth. Uh, and uh, that's what you see them doing. Our grant went to actually, not to get started. They had actually already started when they wrote us. Our grant uh, went in to help them uh, train five other villages in how to make these palm and bark bags. And this is where we go back to, again, the indigenous sense of the interdependence and the interconnections. And these were basically, they started with 10 weavers in Cusco, Peru. Uh, and in order to really, this was more of an economic project in a true sense, except that it was fascinating the way they were looking at, in order to be more economic productive, they wanted to build more flexible units of production. So they came to us to really take this palm, uh, to take the polyurethane and uh, palm and uh, grass bags to five more villages. What we've seen uh, in coming in from the community is it's the paradigm that drives the design. And we've seen from smallest projects to our larger projects, there's always a connection of looking at balance, of looking at flexible production, of the prosperity within creation. There's one fellow named Jerome Lewis who's an anthropologist over in, out at Cambridge University and he did a study of the um, Batwa pygmies and what was fascinating was he was talking about how there's absolutely no words in their language for scarcity. And so they were evicted from their parks and they were sitting basically on the sides in some of the most depressing and devastating situations and circumstances that any of us could imagine. And they radiated and they beamed a happiness, caught up in a confusion for feeling completely responsible for what was happening to the forest because they had stopped performing the obligations of taking care of and stewarding the forest. Like I said, every, every society organizes itself socially, politically, and economically according to its values. It's not a coincidence that 80% of all remaining biodiversity lives on indigenous territories. Combined, we have about 24% of the Earth's surface with 80% of the remaining biodiversity. 
Protection and production, production and protection truly works. And that's it. Thank you. That was Rebecca Adamson. She's a member of the Cherokee Nation.
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>